Hello, I'm Alex Long, the Vice President of U.S. Surgical Marketing at Alcon, and we are proud to sponsor the History of Eye Care podcast to help facilitate important discussions about ophthalmology. Alcon's business is built on a solid foundation of market-leading eye care expertise and deep, long-lasting relationships with eye care professionals like you. As a global leader in eye care, we offer the most complete line of ophthalmic surgical devices in the world, including best-in-class equipment platforms, market-leading implantables, and a full line of consumables. Alcon is committed to delivering better patient outcomes and customer experiences through world-class training, education, products, and services. Visit professional.myalcon.com to connect with us. Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Let's dive in. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the History of Eye Care. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, and I'm here to guide you on another exciting journey through the modern history of our field. Today, we are joined by Dr. Kathleen McCabe, who is a distinguished figure in the world of ophthalmology. Her significant contributions to clinical trials in the IOL and MIG space, as well as her development of the belt loop technique, have helped push innovation forward in our field. Dr. McCabe has served as a president of the Cedars Aspen Society and has received both the American Academy of Ophthalmology's Achievement and Secretariat Awards. She currently serves as the president of the Outpatient Ophthalmic Surgery Society and the chair of the Refractive Surgery Clinical Committee for the ASCRS, as well as serving on its governing board. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Kathy. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into medicine and ophthalmology? Yeah, so it's a delight to be here with you too, Morgan. And thank you so much for inviting me. It's always fun to say who we are and how we got where we are. And I appreciate the opportunity. I didn't start out in medicine or or ophthalmology. In fact, my brother, my older brother is an optometrist. So I was pretty sure that was exactly not what I was going to do. I actually started out marine biology undergraduate. It was funny. I've been thinking about it lately. And I heard that little humpback whale song that came in National Geographic long before you were born, like in the 1970s. That really inspired me, and I wanted to be a marine biologist, so I did that as undergrad. And I actually went to graduate school, too, at the University of Florida for sea turtle physiology. So that was the beginning. I never thought about medicine, but when I was in graduate school, I really enjoyed, like, the physiology class and, you know, teaching the lab. And I realized that the people who were doing, who had PhDs, who were doing what I thought I wanted to do were spending so much time either writing up grant proposals or writing up their research and very little time out in the field. And in the meantime, I married Dave and he's also a marine biologist. And I thought, you know, two marine biologists, this might be a little bit harder to figure out our path. And so all those things kind of added together. We decided that we'd start thinking about uh, medical school for me, but it's a joint decision. And I ended up working in a basic science lab up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where Dave grew up, where his family was. By that time, we already had a child. 
and thought about, you know, we needed family around if I was going to go to medical school and then applied to medical school and, and went to medical college of Wisconsin for my medical school training. Awesome. And then how'd you decide ophthalmology? There's a lot of options, especially marine biologist. I guess the eyes, uh, pretty aqueous filled environment. Well, so maybe, maybe that's similar to intersegment. That's right. That's that's interesting. I like that. <laughs> like I said, my brother is an optometrist and I, I really thought nothing about eyes. I didn't really want to do the same thing. Uh, I liked everything. You know, there were certain things I didn't like. You know, I knew I wasn't going to be an anesthesiologist, for instance. Uh, no offense, but I wanted to speak to my patients and not just put them to sleep. And and I loved surgery and I loved medicine and I loved kids and I loved adults. <laughs> but I wanted to really feel like I was an expert in the area that I was going to be practicing. And I could do all of those things in one small area in ophthalmology. And it was really my brother who kept saying, well, just take a rotation because I don't know what it was like in your training, but we had a two week computer program and that was our exposure to ophthalmology if we didn't take a rotation. Wow. So I did an elective in retina and I was like, oh my gosh, I got to tell my brother he's right. <laughs> it really is awesome. And I, I was hooked at that point. It is interesting that you mentioned it was it was a two week kind of computer rotation. I think back to even my journey and, you know, ophthalmology was never really something that was forefront in early medical training. And if you didn't know or have some sort of interest ahead of time, it was sometimes really hard to get into it. It's interesting that the exposure isn't there like it is for other fields. And I think it's because it is such a small space. You know, it's it's not like it's like you can get in there and assist with other surgeries, be a, a second or third or fourth assistant assistant with your you know running bowel or whatever in in like general surgery or assisting with suturing and closing and things like that. It's hard, it's hard for medical students to do that with the eye because there's just no room. So I, I do think that's always that's something that maybe we can improve on in our field as a whole is getting medical students interested earlier. Once you got into ophthalmology, how did you decide that you wanted to be such a rock star? I mean, did you just make a decision where like, I'm going to be I'm a rock star in interior rock. segment? No. <laughs> you know how that is because you just want to do the best you can and provide the most service and try to find the thing that really is exciting to you. And so it's funny because I actually started my journey in ophthalmology differently. That rotation was in retina and I loved everything I was learning in retina throughout my entire residency, I was focused on retina. I worked with some mentors in retina, you know, Harry Flynn at Bascom Palmer. That's where I did my residency. And Tim Murray was a, a big supporter. I actually did some research with him, even as a, a medical student. I thought that was going to be my path. It really wasn't till the end of my residency when I had decided that I was going to stay for a retina fellowship there, that I really did some like soul searching and realized that that I loved cataract surgery. I just loved that independence that we could give patients that new vision and, and make things better than ever before, which, you know, as much as it's important to do, you know, retina diagnosis and treatment, it doesn't always, you know, result in better vision than the patient had prior to having their problem. I jumped ship at the last second <laughs> and decided to, uh, <laughs> to do intersegment and, you know, cataract and refractive surgery. 
And, and you've done some incredible things. I mean, not, not just the research that you've done, which we can talk about a little bit later with, with all the new devices you've been involved with, but also some of the techniques you've developed. I mean, you've developed a technique that I've been able to help patients with, which is it's, it's a cool thing to create something that then others can then go and use to help others. Talk a little bit about that. Tell me about the belt loop and how you came up with it. So the belt loop idea uh, was something that came out of the Yamani technique, really, just seeing that you could melt the haptics and get flanges and just how cool that was and how different that was. And I hadn't really thought about applying that to anything other than, hey, we can use this special lens and, and treat patients. And, and first, before I tell you exactly how that happened, I just want to agree with you that it's probably the most satisfying thing that I've done in my career is Although I've come up with other little tricks and tips, maybe how I put a lens in or how I do some other thing, this thing is the thing that has given me the most satisfaction because I think it really has helped a lot of doctors to help their patients in a way that they hadn't anticipated before. So it is really, and I know, you know, you're much earlier in your career and you've already had that experience with some of the things that you've come up with. So that's really a, a cool trajectory to watch you have as well. But the way that it happened for me for this particular technique is that Yamani technique had, it was something we were teaching. Just for our listeners, the Yamani technique is generally used with a three-piece IOL with polypropylene haptics. And you can take cautery and actually melt some of that plastic down and to create like a little bulb at the end that then tethers or secures the IOL into the sclera, the white part of the eye. And I was teaching it at cataract surgery, telling it like it is. And in during that lab, the hands-on skills transfer type situation, we were using sections of polypropylene suture as a stand-in for the haptic and just getting an idea of how you melt that to make a flange. And I was like, you know what, what else could we use this for? Like, this could be really cool. We could use it for all kinds of things. And I had the idea to use it for a dislocated IOL and especially Sometimes we would have patients with premium IOLs and they were just so unhappy that they wouldn't be able to have that lens and that they had enjoyed the expense of it was something that they didn't want to lose out on anymore. They had enjoyed their vision with the technology before they had something happen, usually trauma, but sometimes even patients with pseudo exfoliation and they just wish they could take, keep it. And I thought, well, the next time I have one of those patients, I'll tell them that I have this idea and we'll see if we can retain their lens. And it just so happened that a couple months later, I had two ladies, two actually delightful patients. And at the same time, basically, I think I saw them in clinic almost the same day, who had dislocated premium lenses. One of them had a dislocated Restore in the bag, and the other had a dislocated Technus Multifocal. And both of them were very happy with the technology prior to the dislocation really wanted to retain their lenses if possible. And they were scheduled on the same day, one after the other, which I think is really the perfect situation for trying to really develop something new. Because if you, if you do something, and this is even as you're learning a new technique, and you've done it once, and you have all these ideas on how you could improve it, and it's months before you do it again, it's the learning that you take from that first one is a little bit diminished and a little faded, at least in my memory, by the time you get to the next one. But since they were back to back, there was a lot of learnings with the first one, even though it went just exactly as I had hoped and the fact that I could see that it was well supported and it was centered. But by the time I was at the second patient, I really understood, you know, adjusting the tension and things like that and a little bit better on the, the um, flange size. 
uh, even by the second case. So I think it was those that one-two punch on the same day, two happy patients that really made me realize this is something that's going to help a lot of patients. Yeah. And repetition. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. When it comes to innovations, learning new things in general, just getting that repetition, those reps in, whether it's on a model and a skills transfer lab, or obviously on our patients as well, is key to taking that next step and learning new things. And it's something that's, it's like anything else, right? The more you do, the, the more you practice, the better you're going to play. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you describe the belt loop for us? Sure. Yeah. So what it does is when a patient has had cataract surgery and they have an intraocular lens implant in the eye, it sits in the membrane. And this is just for, you know, some of our listeners who may not be the surgeons doing it, but it sits inside the membrane that surrounded the cataract. And then over time that stabilizes by that membrane fibrosing and sort of shrink wrapping, I usually say, around that implant. And it's supported by hundreds of little thread-like things called zonules. But with trauma, which is often the case, or even somebody who aggressively rubs their eye a lot, I think that may be a factor in some of these cases, or if they have inherently a weak support system or weak zonules, that lens can dislocate or move so the lens is no longer centered. And in those cases, you know, we can either take the whole thing out, which means that the gel in the back of the eye, the vitreous, is going to follow it, and we have to remove all the vitreous as well, and then find a way of putting a new lens in a different way that's supported differently, usually with sutures or with that technique we just talked about. What I thought is, what if we could keep the lens in there, and how could we do that? And so by taking the polypropylene suture, and passing it around that haptic, the little arm that supports the implant, through that capsular bag or the membrane, and then externalizing the two ends of the polypropylene suture, like a belt loop, like a little loop around the haptic. You can then melt the ends of that suture into little flanges, just like the Yamani technique, and bury those into the sclera, and it allows you to keep the lens it allows you sometimes to avoid any loss of vitreous or the need to manage the vitreous. And it is actually pretty straightforward and low tech. And oftentimes if you can, you can do it on one side, if that's where the damage is and the, and the weakness, but it's pretty straightforward to even do it on both sides. You really have a very, very secure situation going forward for the patient. And I think what's so great about the belt loop technique is that you really you can do it all through a couple of paracentesis. And, and many times you don't need to do a vitrectomy. And the two paracentesis is such a small incision. It heals nicely. You don't have to worry about a larger incision you'd have to do to remove a lens and put a new lens in. And it's also you don't have to take down the conjunctiva, which we would have to do with most of the other suturing techniques if we don't use that flange technique. So it's very, very tiny entrances into the eye. The way paracentesis were described to me in more complex cases is that it's free, right? It's not something that generally causes any issues to the patient. It doesn't really induce astigmatism. And so my, my mentor, Dr. Yusuf Khalifa, uh, had always said, you know, paracentesis are free. If you need to make an extra paracentesis, go ahead and make it. It's, you know, it's better to make it than to not, than to not if you need it. Absolutely agree. And when I'm putting several in and I'm contemplating, am I going to need another paracentesis over there? I think... Paracentesis are free, exact same thing. Can you talk us through, I think it's something unique, even from a historical standpoint, getting different takes on this. When you come up with a new idea, how do you get it out there? What does it take to get a new idea out there? 
Yeah. It's funny. It's like, it's like anything like new technology too, right? A new technology comes out and how do you get the word out there? Who is it that's going to start adopting it first? Sometimes it seems like it just doesn't get any traction for a while, despite the fact that I feel like this is all I talk about and I'm very passionate about it. The timing of it was right before ASCRS, a couple months before ASCRS in 2019. And I was leading an instruction course on complicated cataract surgery during ASCRS. And I was like, oh, this is going to be my opportunity to do the first introduction. And of course, it was just whoever attended that course happened to be there and I could introduce it to them. And then I just kept talking about it at each of the meetings, which you and I know we attend to be involved in many meetings. So every time I had the opportunity to talk about a complicated cataract surgery and a new way of addressing it, I would. And so that's sort of the first venue. And then after that, when surgeons had heard about it, they would sometimes directly message me or contact me and say, hey, you know, I saw you presented this thing. Can you give me a little bit of a few tricks or tips? I'm going to do my first case What are the things that I should know about? What have you learned since you've been doing this for a while? And I think that's helpful because then those surgeons are talking to others in their sphere. Like my sphere is not big enough to get the word out everywhere. So as soon as you have others who are adopting it, they can start talking about it as well. And then it's publications and podcasts, for instance. (laughs) And I have a YouTube channel as well that I don't probably use as well as I should, and iTube. So just about all of the ways that we interact with new ideas. Over time, I was able to introduce this idea in all of those different platforms because we all access that type of information differently. So hopefully I'm, I'm reaching a different audience with those different types of communication. I think that's awesome because I mean, it does, it takes more than just one form of media nowadays, whether it's, you know, it can't just be a meeting or just a publication. It probably needs to be multiple different things in order to really spread the word. Can you talk a little bit about, I think it's just good to go along with innovation, whether it's a new technique, a new device, a new anything as an, you know, being an early adopter, whether it's something you created or just had a role in, in the naysayers, maybe some advice for those who are looking to push boundaries or take the next step in advancing something there's always resistance. Are you able to talk a little bit about maybe your experience in resistance and how you persevered and pushed through? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a good point because there are always naysayers. There are people who are cautious. And I gave a talk about a new technology, a new MIGS technology just last night. One of the docs in the audience asked some hard questions, you know, why even worry about MIGS? Why, if the patient's doing well on their drops, is this important or not? And so I think before you get those hard questions, you need to really figure out your why. Like, why did you develop this new thing? Why do you believe in it? How have you overcome some of the early stumbling blocks? How do you address some of the things that you have already encountered that people, others may find as either too risky or too difficult? And how did you work through those personally so that you can authentically and passionately respond to those kinds of criticisms. And once you feel really good about your why and how you made those steps and the choices you made, I think that's a very strong place to come from, to feel good about where you're at, despite whatever you may have come towards you. It gives you a nice rock foundation to say, yeah, I hear the wind blowing at me there, 
but I, I'm solid. I'm okay. I'm going to be good here and I'm going to keep moving forward and I'm going to keep innovating in a way that's going to make this even more accessible to everybody. It's interesting. Initially, I used to think that the naysayers were the roadblocks, but I actually think they can help be some building blocks sometimes too, because they can help define your why. And so I think it's a part of the process. Talking about how this is a technique that can be used really anywhere, it's, it's low-tech, if you will. So let's talk about things that are low-tech, because low-tech means generalizability to ORs and other areas that maybe don't have all the resources that we have. So you have done a lot of work in global ophthalmology. You've set up a new eye hospital, basically, on a beautiful island to take care of the, of the local population there. Tell all of us about your, your kind of global ophthalmology journey and the work you've done so far. Yeah, so it is something I'm very passionate about. So thank you for asking about that. But I think one of the opportunities that we have and one of the reasons I love being able to do cataract surgery is because it's a very short intervention that can be life-changing, really quality of life-changing. And as I have been more and more involved in really underserved areas, I think that it's more than even just life-changing for the patient. It may be life-changing for their family, for their caregivers, and for their community, even if they're able to then start contributing again in a way that they weren't able to because they weren't cited in a way that they could. It just has a ripple effect for a very short intervention that's high skill and often high technology, unfortunately. And so the ways that we can approach it to simplify it and to decrease the amount of resources that are needed, I think those are all very valuable in augmenting the effect that we can have in those scenarios. And the reason I got involved in that to begin with is when I grew up, we hosted people from about 40 different countries in different reasons. You know, we had students that stayed with us or maybe somebody who's visiting on a business trip and really wanted to experience American life. We didn't really ever go anywhere as a family. We didn't have those kinds of resources in my family to go travel outside the country, but I had that perspective uh, because of people who stayed with us. And it helped me to realize that not everybody has accessibility to the same things we have here and that it's meaningful to make connections with people in other places and to try to do something positive, you know, have a positive influence in that area. So even as I was deciding on different subspecialties, that was one of the things I thought of having the ability to do this sort of short interaction that's life changing. And so even before I was in ophthalmology, I did a little medical mission. I've done a lot of construction missions, actually, where I mixed cement or laid brick or tied rebar or taxed <laughs> uh, rock. <laughs> and all of those were really, really rewarding experiences as well, where you see a problem and you see the solution and you see the results of the solution. And we get to do that in a highly skilled area where maybe those skills aren't available where we go. So as soon as I had those skills, I was no longer tying rebar or mixing cement. <laughs> I was trying to help with vision and, and do cataract surgery. Early in my career, I had the opportunity to go on this mission to St. Vincent. So it's a Southern Caribbean island, just south of St. Lucia, west of Barbados and north of Trinidad and Tobago. And it is very underserved uh, for their health care. And that was at the invitation of Eric Purdy, who had been going there for about two or three years before I joined him. 
uh, on this mission. And we've been going as a family ever since, so about 20 years now, although we skipped a couple of years around COVID. And we've become very attached and involved with the community there. We now have relationships with the local ophthalmologists that didn't even exist at the beginning of that journey, who do provide that indigent care and follow-up and help us to set up what's needed there. And it are an opportunity to expand that effect when we're not there. And as a result, we've taken on a different perspective on missions from just how many patients can I do cataract surgery on, which is very important because there's a great need to how do we sustain that when we're not here? How do we augment that effect by teaching some of the local ophthalmologists and bringing resources? And how do we provide a space that's more accessible to the ophthalmologist there so that they can provide that care when we're not there? And that's pretty much in the phase we're in right now. We purchased a building in January of 2020, maybe not the best timing as it turned out. <laughs> Since uh, all our plans to go down right away and renovate it uh, got thwarted by COVID and delayed a bit, but we were able to return in last year, so 2022. Uh, they also had a volcano that erupted on the island, so not COVID wasn't bad enough. They have a volcano too, and then we were, but we were able to come and and dedicate the building to a local general surgeon who had dedicated his life to taking care of the people in St. Vincent. And we're renovating it, and it's hopefully going to be ready to have missions that are more regular and a space for education and learning that's more continuous starting next year, we believe, by the time we would go on this mission next year. That's awesome. I mean, that takes some incredible just dedication and perseverance to do what you guys have done. And and so I, I applaud you for that. So you mentioned MIGS when you were talking earlier, which is minimally invasive glaucoma surgery. You've been involved in quite a few MIGS devices. How has MIGS evolved over your career? Glaucoma was, at the beginning of my career, it was like the most boring subspecialty. Uh, nothing new happened in glaucoma. My opinion, and I, I'm going to apologize from the very beginning to any of my glaucoma colleagues, but my opinion was trabeculectomies are barbaric and there's got to be something better and how can we haven't innovated there? Not that I was going to innovate myself with a new idea, but I, but I certainly felt the need. And earlier in my career, I was approached actually by a company that was doing some innovation. Uh, it was actually Ivantis, and they were looking for people to be involved in their registration, their FDA registration trial. And there were no MIGs other than ECP. So I had been doing that laser treatment that you can do to the ciliary bodies during cataract surgery, pretty much since it was available. So for many years by then, but we didn't have anything else really. That was about it. That was around 2014, right? So 2014 was the registration trial. Yes. But in the early 2000s, we had ECP available and I had been doing it all the time since then. And every patient that I thought would benefit and needed pressure lowering and there were innovations in how you do that to not have a lot of inflammation in the eye. And even then, I passionately felt that there were steps we could take during cataract surgery that might really augment the pressure lowering effect we know happens with cataract surgery anyway. So I had that mindset already, but I ended up involved in that Hydrus, the Ivantis trial, learning how to look at the angle, which I think is one of the things that's been sort of a, a stumbling block for some surgeons and feeling like this is a new skill 
to acquire. I started out with that right away. Actually, my fourth patient that I did out of the country in order to train was a phacic patient to put the hydrus in the angle. And I think it was a real advantage to start with that technology because you really do have to be in the right anatomy, in the right space in order to be effective. And so even though maybe I wasn't looking at the angle every day or all the time or in every patient, and that was a little bit of new territory for me as well, not something I ever looked at during surgery before, I acquired that skill of understanding the anatomy pretty early in my MIGS career because of that. In fact, I put Hydrosyn before I put in the iStent Gen 1, which was soon released commercially after I, I entered the trial. So, But I already understood that anatomy pretty well by then and really saw the benefits of MIGS, even though I thought, again, that this was never an area of concentration that I would be all that interested in. MIGS changed all of that because it just became exciting to offer this life-changing benefit again to patients all at the same time with their cataract surgery that I felt was a more holistic approach to trying to really make a meaningful difference for those patients and especially even out of the country. They have even less access to topical drops, you know, in these underserved areas and doing something surgically that might alleviate the need for drops is really even more important in my opinion. The data as a whole in the field and realm of MIGS is pretty darn good. I mean, it's pretty strong and it's something that it's it's here, it's here to stay. And I think we're going to be seeing more and more patients who are switched over to a, a MIGS-based procedure, either standalone or in conjunction with cataract surgery, because our frame set with glaucoma is to be more interventional now on the front end, to be more proactive instead of reactive. And that's even changed just over the last eight or so years that, that I've been involved or known about some of this stuff. It's good. I mean, it's, it's, re- it's a great step forward in protecting our patient's vision. So speaking about protecting things, I know that you have a very strong interest in protecting this great earth that we were given. And so with that comes sustainability, because as we both know, when we walk out of an OR day where we've done 20, 30, 40, whatever, however many cataracts it may be, we're filling dumpsters of trash. But can you talk about sustainability? I know that that's kind of a big, a big topic, but how's that evolved? Because I don't think it was something that was too, it was on too many people's minds even 10, 15 years ago. And now it's, it's kind of at the back of everyone's mind, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, I just have to applaud David Chang because he has been an enormous force behind increasing this awareness on sustainability in the operating room and around cataract surgery and in ophthalmology and looking really at what is the impact of what we do and realizing it's really huge, our contribution. Not only is OR waste a huge contribution to greenhouse gas emissions and carbon footprint of the U.S. in general, but we are the most commonly done procedure and we are pretty intense in the number of consumables and disposables that we use around a single cataract surgery. So we have a big impact and it's also a large opportunity to make a big and meaningful difference in that footprint that we're leaving. So he reached out to me actually to see if I would be interested in being involved in this OR waste task force. And that really came about during COVID, you know, around actually 2020, 2021, when we started doing some surveys 
around that topic. At the time, I was involved in the executive part of OOS, the Outpatient Ophthalmic Surgery Society, and I was the president of OOS. And that was a great collaboration to have, being uh, the Outpatient Ophthalmic Surgery Society and ASCs, where most cataract surgeries occur, we had access to a lot of the data and not only that, but the stakeholders, the CEOs, the the nurses and the surgeons of surgery centers and owners of surgery centers. So we could survey to see, you know, is this just something we're interested in or is ophthalmology and all these stakeholders really noticing this and passionate about it as well? And it turned out in these surveys that 90 plus percent of those who were surveyed which is over a thousand surgeons too, actually thought it was excessive, thought we should do something to decrease it, thought the industry should actually help us with that task. And also our state societies and our national societies should have that on their agenda as well as something that we are looking at and looking for ways to collaborate and decrease that impact. So it really started with David Chang. And another thing that came out of that is a website isustain.org, which is a global and collaborative area to share information, to work together collaboratively, to understand what's going on globally in our specialty, and to catalog resources. Isustain was born on Earth Day, but just last year, in 2022, April 4th of 2022. It's continued to be a focus and it has just snowballed from there. We have young surgeons who are very passionately involved, both on the iSustain editorial board, and there's a young ophthalmology organization through ESCRS as well that's very passionate and involved. It's a collaboration, iSustain is, between AAO, the American Academy of Ophthalmology, the ASCRS, the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, and ESCRS, which is the European counterpart to that. And as of today, I think there are about 40 international societies who have signed on to iSustain as well. Every state society is involved as well. And so it's it's actually been an amazing journey to watch how this has just taken off in such a short time, a little over a year, actually. It's not just the waste. It's not just the consumables that we have. It's all of the moving parts that go into that. I mean, I, you know, when I walk out of an OR day, I see like 12 more boxes being delivered off of a truck. It's unbelievable the amount of packing materials and the shipping and the fuel that goes into the shipping for all of these procedures. I mean, it's pretty astounding. I want to be encouraging to our listeners, too, because one of the things I've really learned is we have workshops with our industry partners. So pretty much everything you can think of that's disposable in the operating room and around cataract surgery and the companies that are producing those have representatives who have come to some of our industry workshops. We've had two at last year's and this year's ASCRS. We had one at the ESCRS meeting last year. We'll have another one at the one this year. They have presented their take on sustainability and what they've been doing. And it's been pretty impressive what's been happening, even in a short period of time. I'm going to use Alcon for an example because they have really stepped up and shared a lot of their learnings and their goals with this group, along with every other company as well. 
But for you mentioned packaging, one of the things Alcon's done is is take all of the styrofoam packaging out and replace that with a biodegradable substance. And it's those kinds of small changes magnified over the volume of cataract surgery that's done and collaborated and spread to other industry partners that are really going to make a very impressive and sustainable impact on what we're doing with our carbon footprint and trying to decrease that. Yeah, that's awesome and strong work. I, you know, I mean, I commend you for, for not just the the nonprofit and the new techniques, the sustainability. Because while all of the other things you've done have touched numerous patients through the teaching and mentorship that you've provided, you know, it's it's really the sustainability that's going to help everyone, every human on earth benefits from from more sustainable measures. So, awesome job, great work with that. If any of our listeners are really interested in this subject, I want to encourage you to first go on isustain.org. There's a great website there. There are many links to all the different things being done and resources and others who are interested. And there's an isustain app as well. You can create a profile. You can talk on chat groups there. And uh, if you're interested, there's a, a place to send your information to iSustain as well. So we can plug you in, in in the area that you're interested in contributing. So please uh, check that out. Great information there. Thank you. You've been a mentor to me. So tell me about some of your mentors. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's so important for us to have people. And I think this is like in general, not just ophthalmology, but in life. And I tell this to my children because... Some of them are still teenagers too. And I, I think you kind of have to have this vision of who you want to be, right? I just want to point out that Morgan is like my ophthalmology son. So this is for me too, <laughs> Morgan. <laughs> it's important to have like this vision of who you want to be, right? You don't have to be that person right now. You don't really even have to know 100% who that is, but you need to sort of have a goal in mind. You want to say, if I could imagine me the way I want to be in five years or 10 years or however long, you know, what is that? And I think that's a little bit of what mentoring is about. It's about trying to identify those people who are maybe, it doesn't have to be everything about them, right? But who are kind of doing the things you're interested in doing and then reaching out to them. So that's kind of one key thing is that most people are flattered, are excited about your enthusiasm, are eager to be assistance. If you find somebody that you, you're admiring or you're thinking this part of what they're doing is really exciting to me. I kind of want to do that myself. Reach out to them because most of the time I think you'll have a very warm and excited reception. But for me, uh, you know, there's a lot of different people along the way. People who have supported me, people who have been cheerleaders, people who have done things I admired. And and just because we already talked about David Chang, I'm going to say him first because he just does so many impactful things that really help all of us in our career. And I think that's the pathway I always wanted to do. I wanted to find ways of, and I think we all do because that's why we're in our profession, right? We want to positively impact the lives of others. And you can do that with a surgery. You can do that with diagnosing and treating an eye problem. You can do that by mentoring, by doing research and coming up with new treatments or techniques, by sustainability, as you mentioned. And so you want to find somebody that if that's what your passion is, that touches a lot of those points. And for me, looking at David Chang, I think he really achieves that. That's really been a great asset to all of us to have him involved in ophthalmology. Lisa Arbisser, just a really wonderful surgeon, a great communicator and teacher, 
so passionate about her involvement in ophthalmology and raising others up and helping to improve how we deliver care. Always patient-centric. Just a wonderful example of how we can move forward in our lives giving back. So she's she's always been a great example for me. Sometimes it's people in industry like Jeanette Bankus. I think she is such a wonderful person who looks at others and tries to figure out what's the pathway to get them further in their career. Because sometimes you need a lot of different building blocks in place for the person that you're mentoring to actually make it to the next level that they want to be at. And she's really great at looking at some of the people in her organization and saying, hey, you're talented, you wanna get here, here's how we can help you on that pathway. And she's looking out for others that way. So I just really appreciate knowing her as well. Lots of ophthalmologists along the way, you know, Vance Thompson, you mentioned before we started and what a great passionate teacher he is. And he really lives the motto of trying to to love others and care for them and treat them like family. And he does that with his staff, with his other colleagues. He, He does that with his patients. And everything you hear come from Vance just really emphasizes that passion that he has. So I I really appreciate him as well. And Bobby Osher and his passion for teaching. And Bobby's given me a lot of opportunities to teach as well. I really love collaborating with him. His expectations are always so high, but nobody works harder than Bobby. And so if you want an example of everything like 200%, that's Bobby for sure. And so I've, I've really appreciated him as a mentor. And then early in my career, I mentioned Tim Murray and Harry Flynn and, and some of the people in the in the retina department at Baskin Palmer that really believed in me and gave me opportunities really early in my career to also speak and teach and get involved in research. Uh, that was really impactful for me as well. And I'm sure I forgot, like, I haven't mentioned many, many, many other people because there's so many. I'm going to say Bill Trattler. Bill Trattler is a great mentor for people. He's always looking for ways to involve people and to make sure that there's great diversity and inclusion on every panel and every, he's just the includer. He is, he's the inviter, the includer. He does a great job of mentoring. Everybody should be a mentor like Bill. It's truly amazing. All of those people that you've mentioned, I've, except for some of those in the retina world, I've crossed paths with, and each one of them has helped me on my own journey. And so that's, what's so amazing about about our field in ophthalmology is that everyone is serving as a mentor to everyone. We each have our mentors that we probably have learned the most from, but I think this field sets itself apart from others in that everyone is so willing to help one another. Not only our mentors, someone who've been in the field for 30, 40, 50 years, but even our friend next door, you know, who was our co-resident or who we just met at a meeting and, and is now your best friend, but also a great mentor. And so I think it's so fun to be in this. And and Kathy, you're one of you're one of my mentors and have been from the beginning. So thank you for all the help you've you've given me. Always been a pleasure. <laughs> Goes both ways. I learned oh, from you. Thank you. Too, so it's all good. But yeah, tell me about the first time we met. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, the first time we met was actually the first meeting right after COVID. It was it was the first time I ever gave a talk, and I was I was nervous. I don't even think I actually gave the talk. It was a pre-recorded talk. I just stood on stage and pushed a button that said play. <laughs> you know, and. Uh, <laughs> 
I did it. I pushed, I pushed the heck out of that button. And, uh, and I stood there and just kind of was like, okay, I'm listening to myself talk and all these people are staring at the screen. And it's like the first time everyone's been social since COVID. And, and then right afterwards it was, it was you and Nicole Fram. We just started chatting about different things in surgery and it's been, it's just been a fun relationship ever since then. And, and one that's significantly impacted my career in the positive way. So it's been a lot of fun watching what you're doing. And I expect amazing things from you going forward as well. <laughs> well, thank you. In talking about mentorship, there's more than just mentorship in ophthalmology. There's also a full support system that helps us along our journey. Can you talk about your, I know that your support system has been very important to you. You want to talk a little bit about that? I think today the opportunities for support system are so much larger and more available than they were when I was in training and early in my career. And I think it's one of the unexpected blessings that I've seen later in my career. I didn't really think I would have necessarily a close ophthalmology family that I felt truly was like my family. And I mean, you know, I had relationships with individual ophthalmologists, but not like a group of ophthalmologists that I felt like, gosh, you know, these are people who would get down in the trenches with me. I can be completely honest and vulnerable and they're going to help me through harder times, maybe harder cases, even whatever it is. And they've got my back. And I really feel like we have so much opportunity to get plugged into those kinds of organizations. Now, first, I want to mention mentorship opportunities which includes like Young MD Connect. And I think that has really been a wonderful place, not only to be a mentor, which I love being involved in it in that aspect, but to be a mentee globally, really get a network of other people who are at the same point in your career. You can talk about your pathway and struggles and insecurities or whatever it is uh, with a very safe group, but also a, a really accessible group of mentors who really want to be there and want to help you. So nothing like that existed even a short while ago. And I think Young MD Connect is just like gold. And then there's other organizations get involved in some of the other things that are around like ACOS or, or ACES or Caribbean Eye, or when you decide you want to start to present that that also is a community of people who are educating others. And that can be a nice support system. And then I'm involved in a, another group called Cedars Aspens, which truly has been my intimate family of ophthalmology in a way that, again, I just think is an extremely wonderful blessing that I was very unexpected and uh, just priceless. Thinking forward now, and I've asked this question of all the guests, thinking forward. So we've talked a lot about, about the past and different, different topics about the past. Are there a couple of things you're looking forward to the most, things that may come out in the next year, two, three, ten, something that you're just really excited about? Yeah, it's one of the wonderful things about being in ophthalmology. There's always so many exciting things and no change to that in the future. If anything, I think innovation has only been accelerating over time. And one of the things I think is exciting is all of the ways we have, and we've touched on those already a little bit, but of avoiding the necessity for drops, of taking the responsibility for their day-to-day -day care out of the patient's hand and making it something that we have a little bit of control over, but then is more sustainable, just to use that word, over time when you're not interacting with the patient. And I think, you know, we have depot medications, we have MIGs that can do that. We have so many 
other ways, even, you know, maybe some gene therapy in the future that can help to change that equation, to take it a little bit out of the responsibility of the patient. And I'm excited about those. There's, we have some exciting ones uh, on the horizon, both for glaucoma and for other medications. And we're going to have intraocular lens technology that's really going to allow patients to focus clearly from distance all the way to near vision. And I think that's really going to make a huge impact in quality of life for patients. I just hope that at my tender age, <laughs> I don't need cataract surgery before some of these really cool new innovations are available because I would really love to have that more youthful vision that really is more closely approximating what we had in our 20s or 30s. Wouldn't that be cool? That would make the conversations a lot easier because right now it's, we have really, really, really amazing technology and we can restore your vision and make it better than it is now, but we can't take you all the way back to when you were 20, but I'm as hopeful as you are in that we can soon have that conversation and say, yeah, we actually can take you back to as good as you were seeing when you were 20 because that would be amazing. Yeah. They're just more exciting things coming up. You never know what's going to make it all the way to the finish line, but we've got lots of options that are headed in that direction. For sure. In talking about all these advances and all the future technologies that we're going to have, none of that would be possible without the, the relationship that you've had with industry and working closely with the industry partner. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, the importance of that? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think for me, that is just another outlet that I have for making an impact in innovation. In fact, it's oftentimes mostly those collaborations with industry that allow us to have new technology, new techniques and new devices and pharmaceuticals to treat our patients. And industry by itself, trying to think of what ophthalmologists need and how they would use a device or how it would be helpful for patients cannot achieve that in a, in a meaningful way. And I cannot just say, gosh, I wish I had this instrument. And you would know about this, Morgan, <laughs> also, uh, without finding an industry partner who can make that in instrument and then not even just make it but allow other surgeons to know about it and access it. And so, you know, because I want to reference your punch for the punch and rescue technique, which I think is also a very innovative thing that you've brought to us. And you wouldn't have been able to do that, I don't think, in your garage, although you are quite handy, I've seen. <laughs> so, but maybe not that, you know, well, manufacturing you. <laughs> might not be one of your skills. Your partnership with industry allowed that to happen. So I think everything we do requires that collaboration and they're not the enemy. They're actually on our side and they have the same goal we do is helping us to provide better care. Yeah. And I, and I think that's really important. That's one of the things I, I try to stress in the few of these that I've done is that clinical trials, new devices, advancing technologies, these things don't happen without that partnership. And it's not, I think that we are all aligned, just like in your clinic, your technicians, your nurses, surgical counselors are all aligned with the goal of making the, the patient's vision better. I think, I think industry has the same views as we do. And that's to advance the field and take care of patients. They don't want to make something that isn't useful to us, right? There's no reason to do that or that has some fundamental flaw that makes it less useful than it would be or less effective. And so they need to collaborate for us to have our feedback and make things better. And we need them as well. It's, it's actually a beautiful marriage of how we move the field forward. So, yeah, I've really and I've really enjoyed those partnerships, too. 
Yeah. Any advice for like a younger ophthalmologist or even, even an older ophthalmologist who's maybe been head down in their practice and wants to get involved and do some clinical trials or see what's going on from an R&D standpoint with some industry? Yeah. I mean, I think it's the same pathway pretty much for everybody. And that's make your interest known. I mean, it's pretty much as simple as that. If you enjoy a certain technology or and you're interested in how that's going to move forward, then let that rep from that company know, tell them, you know, I would love, and this is kind of how I started, I would love to be involved in trials that involve new lens technology. You know, I'm really passionate about that. I love providing my patients with new opportunities to see more independently. I know there's a lot of things in the works. I would love to be part of that process as you develop something. And so make just make that interest known. I think that's the first step and may take more than one conversation. It's not, you know, it's not always you go up to the first person and say, hey, hey, let me be involved. And they go, oh, of course, <laughs> you might have to, to have that message more than once. But if you're passionate about it and you're persistent, I think you'll find those relationships just as rewarding as both you and I have. I think that's a great point. So in talking about your mission trips that you've been on, can you talk a little bit about how your family joined you along on these trips? Yeah, I think that has been one of the great things about missions as well, is that I've been able to take my children along on missions. My husband's been intimately involved in missions. He's actually the mission director for our St. Vincent project. And it allows them, my family, to get a glimpse into what I do on a daily basis it helps them to also experience all of the benefits of being able to change people's lives and see that impact. It gave my children a view into a world where maybe they didn't, the other children that they see there or other people don't have all the resources that they have. So maybe gain a little bit of appreciation for what we have in our lives. It's a team building thing. So it can be team building with your family. That's great. It's actually part of our identity now, you know, the McCabe's as a family are, are passionate about missions and passionate about our project there. And that's part of how they identify themselves. But it also allows me to take some of my staff and we have that shared experience. It's very bonding. It's also a, a life-changing experience for them many times. And it helps them to be adaptable in other environments where maybe they don't have all the things we normally have or the light bulb that we normally would have isn't in the microscope or we have to make do with some other instrument. And so I think it improves your flexibility and your your ability to roll with the punches, even for your staff and everybody on the team. So I would encourage our listeners, even whatever it is, whatever sort of way you have of making an impact that to involve the people you love and care about, it's a growth opportunity for them. And it's an opportunity for you to get closer in a way that's centered around maybe a little bit of adversity, a little bit of a new experience. And I think that's really valuable. No, that's really awesome. I think that it's incredible what you've been able to do. And it's so apparent how, how much support you have, how well, you know, you and your family have done with incorporating missions into, like you said, kind of your, it's, it's in your DNA now and in all your kids' DNA and now they're loving it too. So that's awesome. Yeah. It's been great. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for joining me here. Always great to chat with you. I hope that our listeners will learn as much from this as I have. And I'm just so excited to have had the opportunity to chat with you today about kind of your history and, and all the incredible things you've done for our field.
Well, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. I always love just hanging out with you anyway, because you're super fun. It was really fun to kind of think about it in a new way, your journey. We don't always sit down and kind of review where we've been and why we've been there. So that was really fun for me as well. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content, in particular, Alcon, who is a founding level sponsor of the season one of the history of eye care. And that concludes another episode of the history of eye care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.